So I've invited uh, Ajahn Sona to give a Dhamma talk this evening. Ajahn Sona is the abbot of the monastery from Brooklyn. That can stay on. Uh, yeah, Ajahn, Ajahn Sona said he likes to actually see people's faces. <laughs> I asked him ahead of time. Make sure nobody's sleeping. Ajahn Sona has been a monk now for 27, 28. He's finished 20, 28 years now and uh, has been living in Birkin. Well, in living in Canada. He's had three Birkins. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, living in, in British Columbia now for over 20 years, longer than Abhay Giri. Please. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Buddhang namang sangang namasami. The title of this talk, for if it's recorded, is Where is the Buddha Now? <laughs> I, I got some good reaction there. So part of writing a good piece of journalism or a book title or anything is to make a title that either intrigues people or offends people or makes them curious. So I thought I'd start with that title. And I want to talk a little bit about just the the obvious here is that the reason I'm here is we had thought that it would be good to get the abbots of the six monasteries in North America together. We haven't really had any formal, regular gatherings, so I came for that, and it's quite something to have that gathering. And at the same time, this building is going to be used for the katina, and of course uh, tonight, and it's at a penultimate stage of development. I think the final bells and whistles will be all in place soon, but we're in. And so these are actual practical matters and very important ones as well. And what we get here is that the sasana, in a sense, the Buddha talks about the sasana, the ongoing process of the sangha and the, the Buddha, the Dhamma, the sangha, in the world is the sasana as being established in a country when people from that country are born and raised in that country and who are ordained in that country, then the sasana arrives in that country. So it, it's a very local experience. Buildings and the culture and people from that country working away in that country. We have something very important here in that it's got a lot of local flavor. Such things as the development of these buildings is not something of secondary importance. It's something of primary importance. And this development has been going on for a long time. I remember being in Thailand at a meeting, probably 1993 or 1992 maybe. It was a gathering of abbots. Ajahn Amaro was there, Ajahn Pasno, Ajahn Sumedho. And uh, there was rumors of the idea of Ajahn Emeril going off to California with some people who thought it would be good to have a monk there. 
And I remember at the meet, it was very interesting. Ajahn Amaro was probably had about 13 reigns then, I think, and uh, he was prepared to be sent off to California. And then uh, Ajahn Sumedho, I think there was something going on with the other uh, monasteries that had been established in England and Europe, and he seemed to have changed his mind about the whole thing. And uh, I don't think Ajahn Amaro was there. He was off somewhere else, but when he came back, somebody, maybe it was me, asked him, so how do you feel about the fact that uh, you're not going to California? <laughs> he said, what? <laughs> so it was a very, uh, it was a kind of an uncertainty about the whole thing, but eventually it turned out he did go to California. And um, just after that, in 1994, I went to Canada, and we managed to rent a broken-down shack in the middle of nowhere, uh, the first Birkin. And Ajahn Amaro did not do as well as that. He had a tent someplace <laughs> on, on vacant land. But he did come and visit us. And um, he was making notes. He stayed in the shack with us. And uh, he's a writer, so he was making notes. And uh, he said, this is a good example. That you really don't need much to get started. And so that was the modest and uncertain beginnings of this. I came down to visit. By the way, I hadn't left Thailand at that time, and Ajahn Pasno was the abbot of Wat Nanachat. And um, I asked him about things in the West and so forth, and he was very definitely skeptical about the whole idea of the any possibility of things going on in the United States. <laughs> so here we are, <laughs> showing how this was not exactly all planned out, you know, this happened, and it happened very parallel to the earliest suttas. When I want advice about how to develop a monastery in this country, I don't really go on the models of uh, developed cultures like Sri Lanka, Thailand, Burma. I go to the early suttas when there was no Buddhism. They were roaming around in a new country trying to figure out what to do and how to relate and that's the kind of the language that I need to reflect on. But here we are, and this is a very impressive building. It's not quite uh, the, all the articulations of it aren't finished, but this project, just this project, was about four years, and uh, probably be close to five by the time every everything is finished. And the whole project has been about 20 years, and my project in Canada, again, is 22 years now. It's quite an endurance thing. It's really not big time compared to historical standards. I mean, some of these monasteries took 100 years to construct, and so 20 years is respectable. But it does take uh, more than an opinion to uh, build a place like this and to train monks and to get us the sangha established and to reach out to the to have a lay community and for the Dhamma to arrive and for the process maturation of the Dhamma practitioners both in the robes and in the lay community. There's a saying by T.S. Eliot, in modern times we have opinions. In older times they had convictions. It takes more than an opinion to build a Gothic cathedral. And in fact to build something like this 20-year project, still not finished, also takes more than an opinion. It takes something called a conviction. 
and this is the nature of the spiritual path. And as quite often, I do run into the fact that this culture is bubbling over with opinions, but not with all that many convictions. And so it's a very insightful remark that uh, T.S. Eliot made, and I've reflected on it a lot. Um, People ask me sometimes about things that I believe in. What, do you believe in this? Do you believe in that? Do you believe in that? And I always think, that not quite, I don't like that word. I, it doesn't, I don't want to answer that question because I don't function in this spiritual practice with opinion as a motivating force. I realize that I have convictions. And you don't have to have opinions to have convictions, actually. Convictions are not necessarily absolute knowns, but there's something that pushes you, that motivates you, that actually makes you do things. And it's a different kind of thing. So the very questions that people keep having about your beliefs are not what actually gets things done, in the, at least in the Buddha Dhamma. And there's something else which makes you walk into the uncertainty and the unknown. As you see, 22 years ago, 23 years ago, the future was very, very vague and foggy. And to walk into it was simply to walk into the unknown. But you'd make that move with conviction, and you have to do all the processes with conviction without certainty of the results. And that's a very important part. In the end, though, the causes were put in, and we see extraordinary results. I'm not sure that any of us really expected it. I didn't think, uh, it's certainly in my place in Canada, I really didn't anticipate that. I didn't think that it couldn't happen, but it was a bit of a long shot. And so all one can do is develop the convictions. As we say, we started in a, a very broken down shack. So this process has to be motivated by something other than dreams and opinions. Why I chose the title, Where is the Buddha Now?, is that one time I was on my way back from Vancouver to the monastery, and uh, there's a Chinese nunnery, Mahayana nunnery, in uh, halfway, if you know the area, in the Fraser Valley. And they wanted to offer some things to the monastery. We had encountered these nuns, and... We stopped in there, and they gave us some uh, very nice candle holders and things like that. And and they said, uh, we have some uh, very venerable monk here, a very, very old, extraordinary monk here. Would you like to meet him? And actually, I didn't want to meet him, but <laughs> I find old monks that are, have great reputations somewhat scary. Present company accepted. <laughs> They can be quite the extraordinary characters. And so I actually didn't want to, but I thought I better be gracious. So I went in to see the monk. And uh, he was he was in his 90s and he was, you know, riddled with illnesses, but he was doing walking meditation and so forth. And he had an attendant monk who uh, spoke English quite well, who was probably in his late 50s. So they sat down and I, since I'm junior, I bowed to them. I was going to bow three times, but they said, just once. And so it was right off to a good start. And then I, we exchanged a few words, and then the attendant monk said to me, where is the Buddha now? And uh, I actually have practiced in the Mahayana school, and I have come across that question before. 
It's not kind of a Theravada question, actually. But I had reflected on that, so I said to him, Well, in the Parinibbana Sutta, the Buddha said, After my death, neither gods nor humans will see me. And he said to me, That's pretty good. (laughs) He seemed to think that I passed the test, but later on I was reflecting on it, and I think, I wouldn't, if I had marked me on that test, I wouldn't pass me on that one. And that was an answer, and that's something the Buddha did actually say. And when you hear a question like that, where is the Buddha now? If you have a very linear, literal sort of Theravada explanation of it, you're going to think, what a strange question to ask. Don't you know the Buddha? <laughs> <You know? laughs> but actually the question's kind of growing on me. It's a very beautiful, a very beautiful question. It's almost like it's not meant that way. It's meant like a poem, you know. It's a line from a song, like something that should be playing in your mind. Beautiful line from a song. Where is the Buddha now? And, of course, the Buddha also said not only that after my death, neither gods nor humans will see me, but also, of course, when somebody came to see the Buddha, admire the Buddha in a physical form, he said, you know, not only can you not see the Buddha after death, you can't see him even as he stands before you. He is not visible here and now. Which is another kind of strange response, which, again, puts us back into spiritual language, poetic language, kind of a line from a song, you can't see me here and now in front of you. And then, of course, he says, whoever sees Dhamma sees me. Whoever sees me sees Dhamma. Always bringing it back to Dhamma. But what is Dhamma? How do you see Dhamma? Dhamma is not necessarily something that is invisible. Dhamma is timeless, and it's visible, appreciable here and now. It's manifesting in the present all the time. In such things as this building, this building, the question is, where is the Buddha now? This building is the answer. And this Sangha here, these people here, you as well, here I see the Buddha now. This is the right attitude. Dhamma is timeless. doesn't mean that it's somewhere else. It means it's now. Akaliko meaning that it's not eternal, but that it's outside of time. It's always present, always visible here and now. And so in what sense is it here and now? It's here and now only if you have the capacity to see it. So you end up having to see Dhamma. And this is where you are also merging with the Buddha. There is no Buddha without your development of Dhamma, of learning to see in this way. And this is exposure to Dhamma that becomes this way. We start to see and feel and live inside this experience. And then we see the Buddha. And without that cultivation, everything, there's no Buddha. You won't see the Buddha. It will remain as some sort of external thing. It's so wonderful, actually, that we cannot see the Buddha. If we could see the Buddha, then we couldn't see the Dhamma. There are kinds of religions that are externalized like that. There's somebody, something out there that is the grand truth. 
And so the Buddha is just so incredibly skillful. He is a living being in history. He moves around. He talked. He walked, etc. But he knows that he has to pry people away from the literal and the concrete. By the time of his death, there is this gathering and his attendant, Ananda, who has a sotapanna at that time, is weeping. But there are dry eyes in the crowd as well. There's Arahant disciples. And the Buddha does question Ananda. He says, why are you weeping? What have I been telling you for the last 25 years? The Buddha is remarkable in this capacity to allow people with ordinary eyes to see him at first. And, of course, this is our tradition with carving statues, the moving in of this statue. There's something here to see. There is a rupa, a form. Because he knows that he's a great teacher. He knows that the nature of ordinary human psychology is that we have to move from the concrete eventually to the abstract, to the reality behind things. This building is very necessary. This is also just a building. It just encompasses space. It's profoundly necessary because it's the beginning of moving between the concrete to the abstract, to the poetry behind it, the Dhamma, the song that allows you to go beyond the fundamental sufferings of this world. So this is a beautiful teaching. You know, and of course, we do this in primary school with children. How do you teach children about arithmetic? Two apples and two apples make four apples. You never say two and two make four, because that's abstract. What is two and what is two and what is four? But apples, yes, yes. Two apples and two apples. This is the concrete. And then by a certain age, then, we can take the apples away. After a while, don't need the apples. And then just two and two is four, and they're happy with that. To what? Huh? We don't need to ask to what. <laughs> so this is the same with the development of this, of listening to Dhamma and coming to the monastery and the function and the order, the concrete nature of the Vinaya and the robes and the buildings and the monasteries and the food. These are concrete things that we need as forms and as literal realities before we move to this thing called the Dhamma. Or we can take away the apples and there's just the abstractions. But those abstractions are more nourishing than even the food that we receive. There's some quality beyond this. The Buddha is so beautifully practical at the same time as offering aspirations which are beyond anybody's previous inspirations. When I first came across the Buddhist ideas about how monks should live and the Vinaya and so forth, I thought, well, he's saying that basically just walk out the door, find some cloth someplace, and then how will we live? Well, maybe under a tree, but where will we eat? Well, somebody will feed you. And I thought, that ain't going to work. And I'm sure that most people thought that ain't going to work at the time. But he obviously had his finger on the practical pulse much more than practical people because he also knows that extraordinary aspirations to pure inner liberation motivates people. 
he knows that it motivates people, that part of us wants something that is extraordinarily high. It gives you a sense of meaning and purpose in life. And don't make it moderate. Make it supreme. Uttama. The highest. And so the Buddha seems to have his finger on, of course, much better sense of reality than I do. <laughs> it's extraordinarily idealistic and it's extraordinarily practical. And uh, these two things seem to be within his grasp to develop. So all these monks here now, a lot of them have carpentry skills, electrical skills, plumbing skills, all kinds of skills that are very practical, down to earth at the ground. But at the same time, their heads should be in the stars. As we chant, we're aspiring to ultimates. Beyond the capacities of most of our sight, when we start talking about the unconditioned and the deathless, and what are these amazing, what happens in samadhi and things like that, we we run out of words that are all that meaningful to us. All they do is point in certain vague directions. And we aspire to that. It's poetry floating around in our heads. We hope for it. We have opinions about it. And sometimes they turn into convictions about it. And sometimes they actually turn into experiences. And if they do turn into experiences, then that also has this kind of side effect that... Others can share and are lifted by the energy of one who touches the Dhamma. Sometimes they talk about one who touches it with their body. Again, it's poetry, but it's as good a description of reality as one can come to Dhamma and the experience of true spiritual and psychological health is something you touch with your entire body. If it's anything less than that, if it's more theoretical, more abstract, then it's not good enough. The Dhamma that the Buddha left behind is something that is transformative of one's entire body and mind, how one experiences the existence itself, and should never be taught as anything less than that, an utter transformation, but an utterly human transformation, an utterly, truly human experience. Sometimes... Dhamma, Buddhism, is full of complexity and can lead into very interesting philosophical discussions, but it's never intended to that. It's intended for the human heart, the most human experience. One of the most important stories for me of the Buddha is at the end of his period of extreme asceticism of giving up. I'm so glad that he was not a prodigy genius that apparently required no effort. I'm glad he wasn't Mozart. I actually was a classical musician before I was a monk. And Mozart's progress to become a musician never inspired me because he, he was already there when he was six. So, And I wasn't. <laughs> so I'm glad the Buddha didn't do it that way. He was 29 by the time he hit the road. I mean, that's good. That's nice because... It makes it somehow human and real, and he did take a good shot at it, and he did have a wife and a kid and a family and situations like this, and it wasn't working out at some level, some very sophisticated level, some very heart level that he also, I'm glad that he's not so crystal clear about it. He knows something's wrong. 
it's wrong enough that he's going to cause some distress to his relatives by having to do something radical here. And he is troubled by that, and they are troubled by that, and he does it anyway. And he still doesn't know, like, who to talk to. And so that it's nice that there's another six years of confusion and profound effort as well. Profound effort that eventually leads to giving up. I'm so glad that he had to give up, that he, in a sense, failed in his early quest, because that is more the human experience. We do fail, and we do run into dead ends, just like the Buddha. And then one of the most touching aspects of that story is that he's sensible enough to give up painful, inhuman kind of practices. He walks away alone, still not knowing. And that's a very beautiful human moment. And we need to internalize that because we also have to sometimes walk away from painful, frustrating things where sometimes there's authority and encouragement telling us to stay with it, but sometimes it's much better to give up. It's not always wise to persist. He gets this out of some sort of good-heartedness. I like to think of that as the way he was raised. He actually was raised in a very loving way. His mother had died, but he had some kindly aunts and uncles and his father, and the people around him showed him love. And I think the voice of that human love was wise enough to tell him, no matter what these guys say, however authoritative they say, my heart tells me it's wrong, and I trust the quality of human love to lead me out of this. So he first, he, he sits under a tree, the Bodhi tree, in a out of the heat. Of course, he's done these incredible practices of self-torment and extraordinary pain practices and deprivation of the body. And these must be very psychologically daunting. I mean, you really must feel afraid and depressed. You're almost on the edge of fainting from lack of food. And you're being told that it's somehow beneficial to just sit in the scorching sun or, you know, freeze at night. So a human heart leads him out of this. And he sits in the shade. He chooses a place near a river where there's a beautiful breeze coming across. And he also decides to eat. I, uh, I love to go over this that story in my mind because it's a moment of relief. There's just a sense of, you're listening to your heart. This is humane, what you're doing. And when he does that, well, it's very interesting. He suddenly remembers his childhood. Now, this is associative memory. You remember that he's sitting there and he thinks, he remembers being a child under a tree surrounded by his aunts and his family in a very loving way. They're in a shade, and he remembers that it's so beautiful, he actually enters into this, what he calls the first jhana, as a child. He's only, what, maybe seven years old, or who knows what the age is then, but he enters into this state which is supported by absolute sense of safety, really, He's feeling, as children do, he's just experiencing his breathing. You know, probably some of you 
maybe going to sleep at night. Maybe on a summer night, your parents put you to bed early. It's still light out. You're staring at the ceiling. You're looking at the window. And you notice your breathing. As a child, you know, you're not, you don't have business tomorrow and all those plans. And so it's possible as a child somehow to spontaneously enter into a state of a beauty of the suspension of, of all concerns and the arising of these beautiful factors of joy, this very human experience of joy. And with joy comes this ease of body. And of course, he's completely immersed in the present as well, just this soft breathing. So it's interesting that as a 35-year-old man who's just been through six years of excruciating kind of practices which have led almost to the edge of death, he comes back to the loving kindness, the safety, the feeling of safety. Uh, he's surrounded by his family and uh, just the gentleness of nature, the shade of the tree, the breeze and so forth. And he makes that association, see? That's a really important bit of story there is that part of the initiation of the true path is your heart knows where the truth lies. And it's a very humane truth. And it's away from suffering and towards loving kindness and safety and the sense to stop doing painful and frustrating things. And it's the beginning of his awakening. He says, he says to himself, that was an experience which is blameless. I just feel it. I just know it. How could something like that is so full of peace, full of kindness, full of joy, be anything but the right way? It's the beginning of the right way. What's inspiring as well is the combination of this kindness, this gentleness, the wisdom to stop doing things that are pointless. And at the same time comes up the other part of the story is, is a kind of a profound determination. There's the other thing, which I don't know how literal it is, but he says to himself, I am not going to rise from here until I am free. And if my body dries up, I am pushing through this one. Now, that's a new type of determination. It sounds a little scary <laughs> as well, but it's not because it's now based in humanity and kindness. And the reason why I can formulate that is he can feel he's close. The only reason he can feel he's close is because he is in line with Mother Nature. Mother Nature is now kissing him on the forehead because he's doing the right thing. It's rewarding him with a positive feedback. He's feeling, I'm on the right track now. I can feel it. And that's also so important in the practice. Whenever we do sit down to cultivate to this nice Pali word, I try to set the word meditate aside. When we sit down to bhavana, <laughs> to cultivate, to garden, to create, to joyfully grow. And with great humanity, we are on the right track. And how will you know it? Because 
the feedback loop will be there. You will feel surrounded by spiritual love, spiritual safety, and it's the kind of thing that, as he talks about his great simile in Metta Sutta, as a mother loves and protects her child, her only child. The spiritual experiences in the highest are not totally different than what we experience, can experience in our ordinary life as well. The joy that he experiences as a child in the first jhana is not something that he never had before. We experience joy in life. We know what joy is. It's just that type of joy is based on something else than the normal kind of joy. It's not just your mother cooks your favorite food. It's a very joyful experience. And there's not just food there, but there's love there. It's very joyful. So we, that joy is, is the same joy as you find in the spiritual. But the spiritual joy, samadhi joy, the joys of relinquishing the inhumane aspects of our psychology, are uh, they're not totally other. They're the same quality. It's just based on some other more sustaining idea. problem with it, as the Buddha, you know, of course his mother died when he was just a week old. He must have had contact with his mother, and then his aunt becomes his surrogate mother, and of course feeds him, and as a mother loves and protects her child, her only child. He is recalling and making meaningful. These relationships of loving kindness are clues to the spiritual path, the best of us. When we feel safe, when we've relinquished our incorrect kind of strivings, He's been brought back in some way by his family love to the right way and renounced this harsh and pointless path. But he's got to take it beyond that because he sees his own mother has died. You know, That's a kind of a heartbreaking experience. And there's just too many possible heartbreaking experiences if that's your only source of well-being and happiness. From this transient and uncertain world around us, that's the only source of your well-being, sustaining and happiness. It's too dangerous. It's inhumane. He's a grand human. And out of that humanity, he's looking for a way past the sorrows, the inevitable sorrows of ordinary life. And this is why it's such a grand gesture. It's all taking place under a tree, in the shade of a tree, in the safety and the kind of the protection of nature itself. And he connects that and he suggests to the monks, you know, find some humane peace in nature, kind of the closeness and the rubbing the shoulders and the intensity of human communities where there's competition, and, you know, friction and opinions and judgments and so forth. It's somewhat inhumane. There's some humanity to be found in the forests, in the trees, in the gentleness of that, away from that. But not just to run away from it, humanity and its problems, but as a place to restore your humanity and to find your humanity, find your way back to a much more raised humane quality. But always, it's always humane. So we need all these practical things. We need the forest still. We need the buildings still. We need the robes. We need the vinaya. We need the, this transaction of food. And I mean, every monk in here, I'm sure they're all... It's a moving experience, and I never get over it. Somebody offers me food. 
I mean, I guess it's connected also to the fact that when you're a kid, your mother just feeds you. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to do anything. <laughs> you're just given this food, you know. There's a transaction of love there, and it's a moving experience, and it's humane as well. You are to surrender your sort of independence and your capacity to control the situation, but in return, you get to experience something almost from childhood that to be to receive. And the people giving also get to be to be your mother, <laughs> to provide for you, to give you, to support you. And then from time to time, we have the privilege of giving back, such as tonight. So I get to offer my humanity to you as well. Um, I wouldn't have the opportunity if there was no building here. So it's this combination of having our feet on the ground, and, and this building, by the way, is, is done right. <laughs> this took a lot of thought, a lot of care, a lot of practical consideration. And that takes time and energy, and sometimes it drains your patience as well. But that's when you see the Buddha. And then you know where the Buddha is. So I will end my talk with an answer to the question, where is the Buddha now? And right here. <laughs>